I want to see Americans go to the, the voting booth and whomever is on the ballot, I want Americans to begin picking integrity before any other, mm. before anything else, before political ideology. I'm William. I'm Dave. Dave is my pastor. Willie is a hospice chaplain. And we've been friends for more than 20 years. We've had thousands of conversations about things that matter and things that don't. So now we're inviting you to join in. Each week we pull a topic out of the hopper and we talk about it. This is the Hopper Podcast. Hey friends, we got a special treat for you today. Dave and I had the chance to talk to Richard Rains. He's the author of a new book, Finding Washington, Why America Needs to Rediscover the Virtues of Her Most Essential Founding Father. This was a fantastic interview, and I am so happy to let you hear it. So let's jump right in. So tell us about your book. Uh, the book title is Finding Washington, Why America Needs to Rediscover the Virtues of Her Most Essential Founding Father. Mm. Now, <clears throat> there are 900 or so books in print dating back to uh, the earliest days of our republic on George Washington. Okay. And so it was a little intimidating to think about writing a book about George Washington because, for goodness sakes, what hasn't been said? Sure, and so sure. um, what I decided to do, uh, really, the, the impetus for writing the book was the election, uh, the primary election season and the presidential election of 2016. Uh, I write in the book that as an evangelical Christian, at the end of the Republican and the Democrat primary, um, I looked around and realized that I had a choice between the worst presidential candidate of my lifetime or the second worst presidential candidate of my lifetime. And no one really that reflected my values. And as part of this ongoing culture war that that we see in this uh, degradation of society, I yeah. wanted to try to appeal to Americans to revive virtue in our culture and yeah. uh, for a couple of hundred years after George Washington's death, he was the model of virtue for Americans. It's only recently that there's been an attempt to erase Washington from our history. And so in the book, uh, I cover stories from Washington's life, uh, many stories that most of us have never heard before. I highlight virtues that he displayed in those moments. And then I make an argument for why we need to revive those virtues yeah. in our culture. Mm. Yeah. So um, how would, how do you define virtue? That's a good question. Uh, generally speaking, I would de define it as the expression of morality. Mm -hmm. So whatever, whatever your moral compass is, whatever the foundational, whatever the foundation of your morals would be, then virtue would be the expression of those morals. Yes. Yeah, we did a little segment on virtue not too long ago. You're, you're definitely uh, in line with our thinking that the virtue has fallen away. Um, I call virtue something that, that, that's moral that has to be practiced. It doesn't come naturally. It's something you have to develop and cultivate. Um, and you're right. The, the political scene is abysmal, isn't it? Um, it's and horrible. Is, yeah, there is no virtue. Um, so, yeah, tell me, you want to tell us some of those stories or tell us uh, some, some prime examples of this? Sure. There are several really interesting stories. And obviously, I wrote a book about it, so I could just co-op 
all of our time telling stories about <laughs> about George Washington, but I'll tell you my favorite. Uh, and it has to do with um, an event in Washington's life prior to uh, really any thought of there being an American Revolution. This was during the French and Indian War. Uh, Washington served as a colonel in the Virginia militia. Mm -hmm. um, he did some things that really he started that war. The French and Indian War is responsible for starting that war. He was given uh, he was given a command of Fort Necessity uh, through some arrogance and poor planning on his part. He got a third of his men killed, ended up having to surrender uh, and agree that the British would never go back to Fort Necessity, which he didn't really have the authority to do. Um, but he failed miserably at Fort Necessity. Mm. So uh, the British load up troops, bring them over here to the to the colonies. And this all happens in in Ohio, which was at the time in the 1700s, the western frontier sure. of America. And so uh, the British get here. They're not very happy with Washington. They don't strip him of his rank, but they strip him of his duties, put him in the back of the line and make him an aide-de-camp to General Braddock. Uh, an aide-de-camp was just a really fancy way of saying uh, errand boy. And mm -hmm. so Washington knows everything about what's about to happen as they are marching through the woods. He knows where the Indi the French and the Native Americans are going to attack. He knows how they're going to do it. He warns Braddock. Braddock says, thanks, but we've got this. And uh, just as Washington knew, uh, the French and the Indians attacked. General Braddock is shot almost immediately. Uh, British start to die and they all start to run. And in that moment, uh, Washington, instead of picking up arms uh, to start fight, fighting back, he gets General Braddock to a safe location and begins tending to General Braddock's wounds until General Braddock looks around and says, you're the only, you're the closest thing to an officer that I see. So I need you to mount a counterattack. And Washington gets up on a horse. He's six foot two. The average height of a European in those days was five eight. So here he is, eight foot tall on a horse. Begins to lead a counterattack against the French and the Indians. Fights from the back of a horse for twelve hours. During the course of the battle, he has two horses shot out from under him, and at the end of the day, he has four bullet holes in his coat, but not a scratch on him. And so the Washington that failed at Fort Necessity and the Washington that became the hero of Monongahela, which was that battle that I'm speaking of, um, were two different people because what Washington displayed through those events, at least from my perspective, is first of all, he, he learned from failure. I yeah. think we have an aversion to failure. If someone fails at anything at any time, then they're disqualified. Well, that's not how you learn and that's not how you grow. So we have to embrace failure as part of the process of growth. And then secondly, even though Washington knew more than General Braddock and, and knew what was going to happen, instead of insisting on his rights, he humbled himself and he became what I call the aide-de-camp of the century. Where even though he had all these other skills that he could employ, he stuck to the job and he became a servant leader. Uh, he became a servant first to General Braddock, and it was through his his ability to learn from him, his mistakes, his humility, and his ability to serve when he was capable of leading um, that really propelled him to become the hero of Mon Monongahela. And in fact, 
after that battle, years after that battle, he met with a group of Native American leaders and they told him that they were present at Monongahela and everyone was firing everything they had at Washington and no one's able to hit him with anything. And so when the Native Americans, when the Iroquois, Iroquois went back to their tribe, they began telling stories of George Washington and the religious leaders in that Native American tribe issued a prophecy. Not many people know this, mm. issued a prophecy about George Washington, stating that he would become the father of a great nation. Now, that's what this this Native American prophecy. Mm. And so even though we probably haven't heard that story um, after Washington died, there were three or four plays that were uh, put together uh, honoring that Monongahela event and honoring that that uh, Native American prophecy. So uh, stories like that, I try to share and I try to pick out those virtues and and really highlight why I think we need more of those virtues in our culture. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Fredericksburg. I've been to Ferry Farms, you know, several times. I've been to Mount Vernon. Uh, I've even been to Valley Forge up in Pennsylvania and, and various other presidential sites, you know, his, his mother's house, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I've heard lots of stories uh, as a boy, you know, how he, he hucked a silver dollar across the Rappahannock River, how he chopped down a cherry tree and said he could not tell a lie, how he had wooden teeth as false teeth. And then not too long ago, there was a, a popular meme going around the Internet um, seeking to debunk a lot of that, saying that his teeth were not false wooden teeth. They were uh, slaves teeth. Um, tell me about some of those those tales. Are they true? Are they urban legends? What uh, What's real in your research? Well, I'm very sad to report that everything we learned in public school was a lie mm. about uh, George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. Yeah. Uh, in the in the days, really the days after his death, people began trying to figure out how to make money off of George Washington. And so um, there were a couple of people that invented these stories to put in books to sell their books. So uh, as far as I can tell, the, uh, the tossing the coin and the uh, the cherry tree are both. You know, larger than life made up narratives. And it's interesting, <laughs> you don't, <clears throat> regarding his teeth, uh, you don't really read anything other than that he had wooden teeth until really the last 15 years, mm -hmm. right? So I'm not saying that he did not. I mean, he had false teeth for sure. So that, that much we know. And as far as I can tell, they were wooden teeth. I don't have any reason to think they were not wooden because I, I haven't discovered any reputable source for for them being slave tea. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about the elephant in the room that someone, you know, some of our listeners are going to be asking. Uh, how can we advocate his virtues if he had slaves? And, you know, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. And, you know, I made up my mind when I decided to write this book that I, I would not write the book if I couldn't effectively deal with that issue. Right. And so I deal uh, pretty extensively with the issue of him being a slave owner. And there's a, a couple of different ways to approach that. And, and I'll try to be brief so that way you can guys ask clarification questions. Yeah. But um, here's the reality. There are two extremes 
when it comes to discussing George Washington or any other founding father in terms of slavery. But we'll just say George Washington specifically. Mm -hmm. On the one extreme, you have what I call Washington apologists. These are people that aren't willing to say that Washington had any flaws at all. Right. So they either don't deal with slavery or they say something like, well, he treated his slaves really well and he uh, put in his will that his slaves could be free. Uh -huh. Right. And then you have the other side that says, well, Washington owned slaves. So therefore, anything he ever did or said has to be discounted and he needs to be erased from history. And let's pull the statues down. Right. Those are the two extremes. So right. let's deal with those two extremes really quickly. And then we'll do what I call a middle ground. So number yeah. one for the Washington apologist. I don't think Washington gets any credit for treating his slaves well. Mm. Washington owned other people. Mm. He was a slave owner. Yeah. If you're willing to give Washington credit because he's, he treated his slaves well, then you're the kind of person that would say a rapist needs a lesser sentence because he told his victim he loved her. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mm -hmm. still So it's still slavery. Right. Yeah. And Washington did not free his slaves. He freed one slave His, in my opinion, was one of his best friends, was a slave that accompanied him everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't free his slaves in his will uh, when he died. He said that his slaves could be free when Martha died. Uh -huh. So so we're still going to keep you around until we don't need you anymore. Right. So so Washington owned slaves. And I don't think there's any way around that. And I don't think he gets I think it was a failure on his part. He failed himself. He failed his country, certainly failed us uh, because he, he came to believe that that slavery was wrong. And we'll talk about that middle road. We'll talk about how he he dealt with that in just a minute. And on the other side of the issue is, OK, Washington owned slaves. So let's erase him from history. OK. If we're going to do that, then let's do it right so there are currently 3.8 million slaves in China today. So what what I want everyone that's listening to do is anything in their home made made in China. Get rid of it immediately. If you have a car that has Chinese parts, get rid of it immediately. Erase any trace of Chinese made products or Chinese influence from American society at all. If you don't, then that means you're a hypocrite on the other side. Yeah. There are roughly 24 million women and children who are engaged in in the sex slave trade mm -hmm. through the, throughout the world today. Yeah. If you are a male and you're listening to this podcast and you view Internet pornography, then you are doing more to perpetuate slavery yeah. than George, George Washington ever did, mm. because there were roughly 400,000 slaves brought to the brought to the to the states there were uh 4 million or so um if i have that number right no there were 12 million or so um transatlantic slaves uh, f uh around 400,000 of them made it to the united states the rest went to south america and and to to europe and so if we're going to take the position that washington needs to be erased from history then that means any other vestiges of any other global slavery we need to do the same thing to that. If you're not mm -hmm. willing to do that, then you're not being sincere. You're just doing whatever the captains of the woke movement movement are telling you to do. Sure, sure. So here's a middle ground as far as I can tell. Yeah. 
So number one, Washington came to believe that slavery was immoral. So he stopped buying and selling people. In other words, he moved. And now since, since you guys are, are pastors, since you guys are in the ministry, I'll tell you, I think this is a, a biblical concept. Um, when you look at three different groups in the Bible, you look at slaves, women, and homosexuals. Uh, slaves and women, we'll, we'll say that. If you read, start reading in Genesis and read all the way to the New Testament, what you see with women and slaves in the, in the Bible is you see what I call redemptive movement, mm-hmm. where it starts with slaves are just a part of the economy and women are property. And all the way to Paul saying that in, in Christ, there's neither, neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, right? So you see redemptive right. movement, right? right? So I think in Washington, what you see is redemptive movement. He says, okay, this is wrong. I'm going to stop buying and selling humans, which he did. And it almost ruined him financially uh, because he had to pay for all these slaves. He would allow his slaves to get married and have kids. He would have to pay for those families. So uh, secondly, um, Washington and Lafayette tried to execute a plan to abolish slavery in the United States. And their plan was to purchase land in the West Indies, move American slaves to the West Indies, and allow them to share crop as free men and women in the West Indies. Didn't work out. It's too expensive of a, of a concept. And this is what I say about Washington owning slaves. Slavery was a, was a product of the human condition since humans figured out they could enslave other people. Uh, the Southern economy uh, become reliant on slaves. And to some extent, Washington was a man of his times in that regard. And the bottom line is people in the 1700s, even people that sought to abolish slavery were not as aggressive as we think they were during those times. And I'll give you a brief example of that. There was a slave in Boston. Her name was uh, Phyllis Watley, Wheatley rather. And she was a poet. And Phyllis Wheatley wrote a poem about George Washington. She's a slave. And in her poem about George Washington, she thanks God for George Washington and asks God to bless George Washington and and honor the things that he does. So what you have in that moment is you have a slave writing a poem about a slave owner Mm -hmm. asking God to bless his endeavors. And what that means, gentlemen, is that means that it was a complicated issue then. Yeah. And it's wrong. We don't. That's not how you view history. You don't apply you don't apply current yeah. dynamics. Oh, yeah. To history. Right. You just understand history first and then you work forward. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, reductionistic views of all of this. I agree. And you're, you're right to point out Internet pornography. If you're if you're looking at that, you're, you're causing hits on a site that produces income and uh, purchasing things that are made by slaves. I mean, let's, let's get serious about. Uh, human rights, then let's talk about what that means for us today. Um, and uh, it's really easy to just villainize someone, point the finger and feel good about yourself. Um, and you're right. If if we're in, in that point in history, uh, we'd probably have a different understanding because that's where history was at that time. Or if, it, uh, if different people groups were the ones in power, uh, who's to say there'd be anything different, right? Um, yet, uh, it's a it's a it's a blight on our 
our past and for sure uh, yeah I'm, I'm glad that you took the time to really uh work through that in the book and and own that because that of course would be a, a really big sticking point for a lot of people given today's society nonetheless it seems to me that that uh from what i've already known and then your book for sure uh george washington was a man of incredible virtue even for his time and the two virtues that you pointed out from the very first story that you told us here, um, I think are so, so important for our culture today. Namely, uh, that Washington learned from his defeat. And I think it maybe especially in politics, but even outside of politics, nobody can be defeated. Like, uh, no one can admit wrong. Yeah. And so then they don't learn from it. And people just double down on their spin, just uh, create just spin, just create spin. And self-preservation. Then, and the other virtue that you mentioned uh, in from that story is that Washington didn't feel the need always to assert his rights. Uh, and I think that's also we see that is just so pervasive mm-hmm. in our society, and such a lack of virtue that everything comes down to I need to defend my rights about everything. I'm actually teaching a Bible study right now, and we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, so much of that book, Paul talks about how Christians are, should not, because of our freedom in Christ, we don't need to be asserting our rights everywhere we go. But we should be loving and serving people. Anyway, I, I want to talk some more about, about um, certainly uh, uh, Washington, as a man of his time, did not show the virtues that we would like in terms of respecting African-Americans, but he did show remarkable other virtues. I wonder if you could talk some more about some of the other virtues or maybe some of these and how they apply. I don't know. Let's talk a little bit more about virtue and and how he showed it and how we need it. Sure. Um, One of the other virtues that he displayed that usually is the first to come up because it it feels like an umbrella virtue is uh, Washington's integrity. Now, I, I joke in the book, um, I'm, there are very few people, if I'm in a room with, with a, if I'm in a room full of people, there's a pretty good chance that, and I hate to brag, right? I really hate to brag. Sure. Go ahead. But, but, if, but there's gotta be someone in that room. That's the worst at math. And I hate to brag, but it's probably me. Right. right. And so, so I'm horrible <laughs> at math. And I, I joke in the book that when I was in college, the, the, the uh, math course you had to take for the theology was called uh, fundamental concepts. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I had to take a remedial class before that so that I could qualify to take fundamental <laughs> concepts. How many I couldn't even take the class called fundamental <laughs> concepts, but, but, but I did learn, I did learn what an integer was, which is a whole number. And that's where we get the, that's the root word for integrity and yeah. Uh, throughout Washington's career, he really displayed integrity. And I define integrity as as wholeness in in thought and, and wholeness in action, meaning that you're not divided yeah. morally. You can weigh issues, right? That's not to say you can't think through issues. But when it came time to do the right thing, it's believing the right thing and doing the right thing. That's what integrity is. Mm-hmm. And the story that I, I tell to display that is when it became clear that there needed to be a break with England, uh, the the founding fathers were having a 
were having a continental congress where they were discussing what we need to do. And and Washington was writing letters to Martha. He called her my dear Patsy. I don't even really know how that, I don't know how we get Patsy from Martha, but that's what he called her. And he would express to her in his letters that he did not desire to be chosen for any leadership position. But one morning, Washington gets out of bed. And instead of just putting on the, the what a normal colonial American would put on, Washington put on, put on his Virginia militia uniform, uh-huh. shows up at the Continental Congress and doesn't say a word to anyone about why he's wearing a uniform. And for the rest of that Continental Congress, George Washington wears a military uniform. What George Washington was saying by wearing that uniform was a break needs to happen. It's not going to happen peacefully. And I'm ready to serve in whatever capacity you would have me serve. Hmm. While at the same time writing letters to Martha saying, I know this is going to happen and I am not itching to be in charge of anything. And so what I point out, and it's a longer story than that, but what I point out in in that is Washington was not divided morally. He came to understand. And listen, it was a it was an ideological issue. But I try to explain to people it was a theological issue as well, because you had on. Across the globe, the way that humans were were governed was from a sovereign king. And in Europe. Those kings believed that they ruled by divine right, meaning that they had been given divine right by God to rule as an under sovereign, really, to God. And anything they said, it was their land, their people, their money, anything they said, go. And and so that was the prevailing philosophy. But what these these colonists were were rebutting that and they were saying, wait a minute. We believe that each individual has been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That was a theological affront to the prevailing philosophy. And so George Washington shows up in his uniform and says, I am on board. And he throughout his career displayed integrity. And I do make an argument, guys, in the book regarding politics, because the book is not just about politics. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you what I want to see. The next election that we have, which we've got a primary coming up in Florida, November's around the corner. I want to see Americans go to the the voting booth. And whomever is on the ballot, I want Americans to begin picking integrity before any other, Mm. before anything else, before political ideology. And listen, I've been in politics. I've had to be I've had to run campaigns and hope people elect me and that sort of thing. I'm telling you, I have a political ideology. I'm a very conservative, politically conservative person, um, uh, darn near libertarian on some issues. But I have made up my mind that regardless of political affiliation, integrity is going to be the first thing mm-hmm. that I look for. And I think what we could do in in two election cycles, because here's what happens. Whatever the people say they want, that's the kind of candidates we'll be we'll begin to get. Yeah. If yeah. integrity becomes important, then integrity will become important in politics and business and things like that. Mm. So that's yeah. the foundation of the argument that I make. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is that is much needed. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. I 
we have our own political views as well. And I think I agree with you completely that uh, I'd, I'd much prefer someone with integrity who disagrees with me in politics to, to run our nation than someone who agrees with me in politics but has no integrity at all. Yeah. So uh, we're going to ask you for some final thoughts here. I just want to um, plug your book. Uh, we're talking to author Richard Raines. His book is Finding Washington, Why America Needs to Rediscover the Virtues of Her Most Essential Founding Father. Appreciate you being with us today. What? Give us some of your final thoughts. So if I could leave the listeners with anything other than please go to Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble and, and buy the book. Um, right. So once the war was won, uh, we were operating under the Articles of Confederation, wasn't working out. You had Shays Rebellion up in Massachusetts. It really scared Washington. Washington thought we needed a constitution and a different form of government. So here we are. We have a constitutional convention and Washington is presiding over the constitutional convention as the president of that convention. So it's nearing the end of the convention. Uh, Southern states are arguing with northern states. Small states are arguing with large states, and they can't seem to work out uh, a couple of issues. So Washington addresses the Constitutional Convention, and he says, to please all is impossible, and to attempt it would be in vain. The only way, therefore, is to form such a government as will bear the scrutinizing, scrutinizing eye of criticism. And here's where we come in and to trust it to good sense and patriotism of the people to carry it into effect. So at the end of the day, Washington had hope that future Americans would have two things. Number one, good sense. We can't be a bunch of functional idiots, right? We have to be informed mm. and we have to understand the issues. So good sense. And number two, patriotism. Patriotism mm. is not blind love of country. Yeah. Patriotism is, okay, the Trail of Tears happened, slavery happened, the Spanish-American War happened, all those things were not great things, and they're black marks on our history, but we love this place, and we'd rather have this place than not have it at all, mm -hmm. so let's see if we can fix the problems together, mm -hmm. and Washington had hope that we would have good sense and patriotism, and so this book is my way of trying to bring Americans together. I give my email throughout the book. It's richard at findingwashington.com. I would encourage your listeners, even if you haven't bought the book, send me an email and uh, let's start talking about some of these things because, I, gentlemen, uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I feel like we're more divided now than we were at the beginning of the Civil War. Mm. Uh, and the difference is ideological and not just uh, identifiable by state lines or one single issue. And so before we have some all out conflict, um, I want to see Americans revive virtue and revive morality. Ultimately, as a Christian, I want to see a revival. Um, mm. But I want to get the conversation started about uh, simply reviving virtue, uh, meaning reviving integrity and character and uh, servant leadership and courage and hope and conviction and those things in our culture. Well, I think that you may be right, and I'm also afraid of that. In which case, though, thank you for writing this book, and thank you for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You got it, man. Thanks. Hey, this is Dave with the Hopper Podcast. If you can't find a politician or media outlet that represents your views, you're not alone. You've got a home right here. 
We've broken free from the cultural and political narratives that dominate the landscape. There are more of us than you might realize. So help us grow the Hopper podcast. Find your favorite episode and click the share button and put it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or somewhere else. Thanks. William, what yep. is the worst job you've ever had? I've had some pretty bad jobs uh, in lots of different ways, but I, I suppose the one that I hated the most was a factory job. Mm. Um, for it was, I just worked there for one summer, and it was a second shift. I was, I was working first shift somewhere else. Second shift, I went in, and it, we made uh, GE ovens. It was assembly line work. Yeah. And mind uh, numbing. Mind numbing. I mean, my rotation of my uh, arranging my pieces, it was a metal press. And my rotation was about eight seconds. And it was the same exact motions with my body mm-hmm. uh, standing up the entire time on an assembly line. It took about eight seconds. And then you, so you work for, I, I was doing, you know, I don't know, three or four hours. They would blow the whistle. The whole the assembly line shuts down. Everybody goes to the crams into the break room because you're not allowed to be anywhere else. Mm. And then, you know, you wait half an hour, come back, and do it for another four hours. Yeah, that is horrible. It was mind-numbing. I assembled CD cases, uh, similar, the yeah. same motion over and over again. Yeah. And, uh, it was terrible. Man, that sounds terrible. I, yeah. What else you got? Other jobs? Yeah. I've done so many jobs. I worked at, I worked at McDonald's. That was my first job with a paycheck. Um, okay. And I remember one time... Uh, low person on the totem pole, right? And so mm-hmm. it's my job to clean out the bathrooms. And I remember... Always a delight. Oh. I'm loving it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I remember feces smeared on the walls. Um, Who does that? I don't know. Someone. I mean, it happens. Yeah. It happens. It's awful. Um, there And there was just a bunch of really, really bad stuff like that. Yeah. Um, McDonald's is a... You know, one out of nine people in the workforce are working or have worked at McDonald's. One out of nine. One out of nine. More than 10%. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of McDonald's out there. I I worked there for a long time. It was tough. I worked for Olin Mills. Okay. I didn't know that. A photography. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know Olin Mills. I was in- In the the mall or in a- Yeah, yeah, totally. I was in the telemarketing department. Oh, my goodness. So I worked for the devil himself. Yeah. As I called people one right after the next and tried to sell them Olin Mills photography shoots. It was horrible. Yes. And uh, then my boss let me go and deliver the packages. Oh, wow. So this was, you know, before the internet and everything. Yeah. So um, people would, would, they'd call and mm-hmm. uh, get people signed up. And yeah. then they, I would deliver the package that they bought and collect their check. Oh, my. And this was, believe it or not, dangerous work. Really? Um, yeah, I was going all over the place. Yeah. And into places that, that uh, I, I didn't feel comfortable. Okay. To collect uh, payment. To collect money. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember just um, feeling really intimidated a few times. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah. But you know what? I collected that check for my boss, baby. Wow. It was wow. better than sitting in that room making phone call after phone call for after sure. phone call. I worked for a marketing agency making phone calls, but we did um, surveys. Okay. And so I did some political surveys, um, but the company I worked for, we had the opportunity, um, the technology, this was back long before computers, we had the technology to play a tape. We had a tape player, so we could play a tape. So we did stuff for radio stations. and be like, uh, so I would ask questions like, would you listen to a radio station? Uh, these two radio stations, which would you prefer? Um, Hot Young Country? 
or uh, <laughs> I forget the other one. You know, uh-huh. uh, today's country, hot young country, or today's country. Ooh, which, hot, hot. I went it hot. Yeah, right. And so then we'd say, okay, uh, let me play this song. Uh, let's see. Do you know who this artist is? Do you know the name of the song? And you know, we go on yeah. with just tons of questions like that. But we also did. Um, that was kind of mind numbing and just like filling out this these papers. Yes, no, whatever, like that. But then I also got the opportunity to test markets um, in that same company, um, cigarettes, smokeless cigarettes. Um, okay. No one had ever heard of those before, yeah. and so we, we did a lot. Well, I have candy cigarettes, baby. Well, these were tobacco, <laughs> but they were the smokeless ones, and it's, uh-huh. uh, I, don't, I, I guess they still exist. I don't know, but no one had ever heard of them before. That's like boneless wings. I guess. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I know that, that, that difficulty. I've had lots and lots of jobs, though. Yeah. Yeah. I painted a lot. Yeah, right. And painting can be very slow and mind-numbing. Well, you've got two. You're you're a painter, and you're a you used to be a painter, and now you're a painter, right? So right, explain yeah. that. Yeah. So I, I used to paint houses right. um, as part of home yeah. improvement. Yeah, which yeah, yeah. you can get a lot of easy paint jobs and not have a lot of overhead or a lot of tools to buy. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty easy to accomplish, and you can make a a decent margin. So yeah. I did a lot of painting that I did. I never liked it. Yeah. But I do paint pictures, uh-huh. um, you know, Paintings. with oil mm-hmm. yeah. paint. Yeah, and that's that's entirely different Much and very better. enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I remember painting like windows. I'd have to paint all the windows in a house in a day, um, and this is a schedule that I put on myself. But in, in order for me to make money, yeah, I had to really be able to paint uh, very accurately and very fast. Mm. Um, and so I'd have a time schedule that was that was one window every fifteen minutes. Wow, and it was this was thick oil based paint. And yeah. it smells bad. I had to wear a respirator all day. Mm. And if I got three minutes behind, I had to make that up in the next window. Yeah. Right? So it was like keeping that kind of oh, yeah. schedule that I could get all of these windows painted. They would all be cracked open, you know, mm-hmm. um, overnight. Then I could come back and make sure that I secure the house the next day and mm-hmm. um, and make sure all the windows are, are operating and closing. That was th- Those are long days. Yeah, you might rough. be painting a window every 15 minutes for 16 hours straight. Yeah. Yeah. That requires a tremendous amount of mental discipline. Yeah. That was horrible. Really horrible. Yeah. 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 Um, I had one job that I actually liked fairly well, and that was to as a behavioral therapist for autistic toddlers. Mm. I had a lot of training for that, but that's part of the way I worked my way through seminary. Did that for years. And one of the difficult parts about the job, I love the job, actually. It was a great job. I worked one-on-one in their homes, uh, preschoolers, with severe autism. And uh, so behavioral therapy. But one of the things that I had to do, uh, this one toddler uh, was a biter, mm. and he wanted to get out of work. He wanted to, I'm trying to train him on various things. And one way that right. he, knew that he thought he could get out of work is by biting me. And uh, one time he <laughs> bit me in the neck and drew blood. Oh, he's a vampire. Yeah. Um, and another time he clamped down on my forearm and just like rolled his uh, jaw around as he's, and it just like. Uh, wow. But. Because he's trying to get out of work, he's trying to get a reaction out of me, and so the way for the way that I needed to respond was to completely ignore it. Yeah, no reaction. No reaction. Yeah. So he's biting down hard on my arm. I had a bruise in my on my forearm for over a month. Mm. It was sore because he just really mangled the. Uh, yeah. So th- there were some bad uh, circumstances there, or some difficult circumstances, uh, but overall, it was actually a pretty good job. Yeah.
Thanks for listening to the Hopper Podcast. You made it to the end of this week's episode. Congratulations. You win a case of irregular corn dogs. I already have that. To claim your prize, write us at thehopperpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 214-267-9287. And join us next time when we'll discuss if Simon Cowell's head is too big. Yeah. There's a lot to say about that. I think it is. Be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and join our Facebook group for more Hopper goodness. Hopper Podcast is sponsored this week by Cream of Donkey Soup. 